So one problem with telling people facetiously to do things on our <laughs> podcast is that sometimes they actually sometimes do it. people do. Do you guys remember in our first or second episode when we said, hey, leave us podcast title suggestions in the comments, and then we realized we didn't have comments and suggested you write them on paper airplanes? So a couple days ago, a giant cardboard box full of paper airplanes was left on my porch. And it looks like I got here and you've got a ton as well. Yes, there's a bunch on my desk here. I'm going to read you a portion of the letter that was in the box. It says, Dear Dan, we love your new podcast and we actually like the current non-title, which is ridiculous. And Yeah, who would like that title? Calls their whole process into question. But as you solicited names, here are a few of the ones we came up with. Thanks for giving us a great few hours of work in Brandon's warehouse. Parentheses, yes, we were still working. And then it's signed by all of your warehouse workers. And that's really funny to me because what you don't all know listening at home is that we record this in a Brandon warehouse and there are often people toiling in the background, usually with the lights turned off because Brandon basically runs a sweatshop. It's, it's horrible. This isn't even the warehouse. That they, the one they're working <laughs> on is not this one. I assume it would have to be a different one in order to be yes. a sweatshop because this one, as mentioned before, is a meat locker. You but. actually aren't far off because we're getting air conditioning installed at the other one because we just bought the warehouse. Well, leased it. And so it didn't have air conditioning. It might now, but <laughs> it had not had air conditioning for uh, quite a while. So if the uh, workers are listening over there, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Blame Kara. He's, he's winking and crossing his fingers while he mm -hmm. says that. So the first of these paper airplanes is on a, just a gargantuan, like, three or four foot piece of cardboard that I'm going to unfold here. I have not read any of these. They've been at my house for a couple days, but I left them unread so that we could do that for you. So this is like a paper airplane the size of a small child. Yes. Or maybe a mid-sized child. A mid-sized child. Yes. Comfortable two-door child with, okay, whatever. What? You called it a mid-size <laughs> child. Mid-size is a car Other word. things can be mid-size? No, the only thing that is mid-size is a car. If you describe a child as mid-size, that means it has four doors and good trunk space, which is frankly a horrible thing to say about a child. And you should be ashamed of this. Whatever. So, we have the unfinished podcast. Okay. Half-baked musings. Ooh, they are pretty half-baked. Actually, yeah. that might be giving us too much credit. Unsuccessful segue, which props where it's due. That's a killer title for that this particular is. podcast. Except for the fact that I can't spell segue, which... They yes. spelled it correctly. Now, they are smart and... And that's why they gave this airplane to me and not to you, because yes. you would have read it. Unsuccessful seg. I'd be like, segui-gui-gui? What is that? <laughs> One of their suggestions is we maybe should be writing, which is, isn't that just Murr's podcast? Yeah, I think, yeah. I should be writing? I should be writing. Yeah. And I shouldn't be because I am sitting here signing things for the people at the warehouse to send out. And so I shouldn't be writing right now. I should be doing this. I mean, I technically, you writing. are writing your name. I over am writing. And over. Well, it's not even really my name. We should talk about signatures. Like, my signature, did you do this when I first got a book deal? I'm like, I have to develop a signature. And I, like, remember sitting 
It was at a church meeting, but like, you know, a group meeting, like a presidency meeting. And I was like, hey, what do you guys think of this signature? And I was like trying different versions of my name. One of my friends saved the thing that I signed a whole bunch of times and has it like hidden away somewhere. I don't know, for his children to sell or something like that. Here's Brandon's name before it was Brandon's name. That's wonderful. No, I didn't actually do that. For the first book, I actually just signed my name. Just like I always sign my name. Like for checks and things? Yeah. Yeah. Which is stupid. And for that reason, that you don't necessarily want to give every stranger on the street an example of your legal signature. And it was actually Del Howard at mm-hmm. Dark Delicacies in Burbank mm-hmm. who had me, when I was there for a signing, he had me sign this big poster. And I'd met him a few times and we know each other pretty well. And so I signed the poster and he said, oh, the whole big signature, like I was your mom. <laughs> And that's when I realized, oh, you're right. I should have a different signature. Mine is not as pictographic as yours. It's still just Dan Wells, but very stylized. I like your signature. Thank you very much. It fits the books you write, right? In some way, it looks like this signature on a ransom note. People don't (laughs) sign ransom notes, I suppose. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah, It's got these big, wide letters, and it's very intentional, but it's also mm-hmm. very, I don't know, there's something unsettling about it. It's not a pretty signature. It's not an ugly signature. It's an unsettling signature. Well, thank you. When you start off writing horror, that is kind of the ballpark you try to play in. The last name Wells, W-E-L-L-S, there's a little tiny E and a little tiny S, and everything else is just very jagged risers. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of leaned into that on it. Yeah, for me... Let, let me ask you this, actually, before. Let's do a, what did they call that segue? Uh, an unsuccessful segue? An unsuccessful segue. An unsuccessful segue. An unsuccessful segue. <laughs> an unsuccessful siege. Do you think it's a big deal to hide your legal signature anymore? Half the documents I signed are signed electronically. You know, they just say, mm-hmm. would you like to adopt this signature and sign? And beyond that, is it really that hard to find an example of someone's legal signature? Probably not. Does anyone checking any signature ever look and say, okay, is this signature right? I mean, I suppose when you're buying a house, they do that weird thing where they're like, let's hold up the signature and make sure it matches. And I don't know if they do because I'm actually in the middle of buying a house right now. We're buying a rental property and it was all digital. We don't have to go in person. No one's checking the things. It's all just the DocuSign stuff. I think that don't share your legal signature thing is like a holdover from ancient days. And I don't even know if it was a big deal then. No. But but it spooked me. Yeah. Like in Korea, they use tojongs, the stamps, mm-hmm. and that's your legal stamp. And I'm like, that makes as much sense as anything. You keep that locked away in a <laughs> safe deposit box. But anybody could stamp that. Mm-hmm. So That would be very easy, arguably much easier to fake. Mm-hmm. I have seen some authors who have very stamp-like signatures, too. Because, you know, some people will do your name, but stylized, like I do. Some people they do, will my do name? the little thing that you have. Yes. Which, how, how, how would you describe yours? So mine is a stylized version of my initials that just turned into a symbol. The artist formerly known as Brandon Sanderson. Yep. So what happened is I used to have a signature where I did a big B, and then the rest of my name kind of legible and then a big s and the rest of my name kind of legible mm-hmm. and over time that changed into big b scribble big s scribble and then eventually i'm like the scribble is useless you can still see some leftovers of it 
in what I do, but now I do a very stylized B. It's three strokes and then a nice flowing sort of that actually looks a little bit like a cursive S On top over the of top of one another. And that became my symbol over probably about five years of signing. One piece of advice I was given that I really like is when you're developing a signature, if you're worried you're going to have to sign it a whole bunch of times, develop one that moves your arm, not your wrist. Yeah, that's smart. Mm-hmm. So that's what this does. It's something, since each of them are essentially three strokes, I can do it quickly. It actually looks nicer than when I write out my signature because I do not have neat handwriting. And so having this kind of symbol thing that replaces it is very appealing to me because I do not like how my handwriting looks and I do not like how my name looks when I write it out. Now you are saved from that mm. with your little iconograph. All right, I'm going to open one of these. This person cheated because this is a boat. That's, that's a paper boat. This is a paper boat. So you know who you are that made a paper boat and perhaps a hat. And, and you're fired. <laughs> I don't know who they are. They do. A hundred years of Brandon and Dan. <laughs> is that better or worse than a hundred years of solitude? Oh, man, I guess that depends. <laughs> on whether you're us or not. I've got a killer one here. Okay. You're going to love this one. Two men, one thought. <laughs> that also might be giving us too much credit. <laughs> that is far more thought than we actually have between us. <laughs> we write kids in space. We do write kids in space. We both do write this kids in true. space. This is true. Has your kids in space ever actually been in space rather than in a spaceship? Yes, because he goes outside of the spaceship yes. and does like a kind of EVA walk. So there you go. Kids yeah. in space. Kids in space. Spencer climbs out of her ship. She doesn't bring a spacesuit. She's special. <laughs> she doesn't have to. How about not enough dragons? Hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I have a lot of dragons in mine. Yeah. The Zero G series. Okay, yeah. Second book's called Dragon Planet. Uh-huh. I have dragons, but they've never appeared on screen as dragons. They've always been in another shape. So I think maybe I'm definitely falling in the non Here's where I expose my bad friendship. Uh Which of your book series has dragons in it? So Dragonsteel that you read? Well, yeah, that one did. Yeah, those characters are are still in the Cosmere. No, those characters are still in the Cosmere and they're showing up here and there. Like you don't even know who they are. The reader doesn't, right? Okay. Uh, Frost, who's a main character in that one, but you're not going to remember him because he's, I guess he's not even a... No, I, I remember, remember Frost. Frost. Frost has been communicating with Hoyd via letters in the Stormlight Archive in the epigraphs. Hoyd calls him a reptile at one point. Is you saying this just now the first public confirmation no. that that character's a dragon? No, I have, oh, I have, well, I have confirmed that. I'm okay. sorry. Maybe it's going to be new to some people, but yeah. All the fantasy tropes, creature-wise and stuff, I just haven't really done. But dragons I couldn't let alone, right? Yeah. When I first started working on the Cosmere, I knew I was going to put them in. Spoiler of the nerddom. Jurassic Park is a perfect film. Here's my thesis statement. I would agree (laughs) that Jurassic Park is a perfect film. Indeed. That is an excellent thesis statement. I have watched Jurassic Park recently and watched Jurassic World recently. And wow, without Spielberg. The difference is stark. The difference is stark. And this is not to say that... You know, Jurassic World, like, I don't have a problem with a lot of the things just in Jurassic World, other than they're just not brilliant, right? Yeah. Spielberg, like this whole crew of them, Spielberg and Lucas and Scorsese and all of them, 
like that started making films in the 60s and 70s, their whole big thing was we're going to take pulp ideas and we're going to class them up. We're going to dress them in a suit and tie and we're going to present them with artistic flourish to you. Mm -hmm. And like Spielberg is really, really, really good at that. And Jurassic Park is, in my opinion, his opus of that. I mean, Jaws is too, but he'd refined his style. Jaws was his first big movie. Jaws is excellent. But if you look at Jurassic Park and you compare it to Jurassic World and you say, what is missing? It's the Spielberg. It's the fact that he's able to work subtle nuance of character throughout the entire thing. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that he's able to work theme into it, again, very subtly with this whole idea of reproduction and children and thriving and surviving. And what does that all mean? The way that he lines up shots. And I'm sure there's a cinematographer doing a lot of heavy lifting there as well. But just the way that Spielberg puts all these pieces together, makes a film that on paper is a monster movie. And in actuality, is just a magnificent opus of art. And another person doing that makes a monster movie. Yeah. So early on in Jurassic Park, when they're in the helicopter flying yes. towards the island. My favorite one. He has to put his seatbelt on. Mm-hmm. And he picks him up and he has two female ends. Yep. And just ties them together and makes it work. Yeah. There is nothing that clever in any of the other Jurassic Park movies. Yeah. And that sort of thing is all through yeah. the first it's Jurassic Park everywhere film. in the first one. It is so clever and so well filmed, and the music is so perfect. So yeah, it is a perfect film, and it's a perfect example of how to make something that is both kind of from these pulp roots and mass broad appeal, as well as being just really, really great use of art. Just, I don't know if I can say it better than that. It's a, that's a shiny endorsement. Really, really great. Brandon really Sanderson. great art because of how great it is. Yes, it's excellent. Um, and it's excellent. You know, we never did the second half of our perfect movie episode, but I've thought of like five more perfect movies since then. So haven't we? No, we, we never haven't. did. We just did, we did like two okay. or three each. Okay. And that's all we got. Through. Oh man, we're gonna have to do more perfect movies then. Here, somebody just... This isn't even an airplane or a boat. It's just a crumpled up piece of paper. This would be hilarious, but Brandon's here. Shots fired. Is that a podcast title? Or is that someone who was about to write something funny and then you walked into the warehouse oh, like, man. in your three-piece suit? That's right. And someone asked for pudding and you're like, No! What do you think I am, made of money? No more coal for you. Actually, <laughs> extra coal, because it's too hot in here. We need to get rid of this coal. We need to artificially All heat right. up the room. We just work here. This one literally does not have anything on it, so... Oh. Ooh, intentionally blank! That person what? is a genius. Oh, man. Except for the fact that intentionally blank is a terrible podcast it's Absolutely title. awful. Okay, gold star for you. Dan and Brandon's Guide to the Apocalypse. Good title. We've tried Apocalypse several times in book titles, and it is still an ongoing experiment whether Apocalypse is a book title is a viable thing for us. <laughs> Did you manage to get Apocalypse Edition on yours? It's on the title page, but it's not on the cover. Okay, yeah. So it's not that they were worried about it legally. We had a mm-hmm. discussion about that. The book is Extreme Makeover Apocalypse Edition, which is very clearly a joke on Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Right. And legally, they're like, nope, we're cool. Mm -hmm. Our concern is that the audience would pick it up and think that they had missed a previous edition, that there was an extreme makeover 
normal edition and they're like well where can i get that one i don't want to buy the apocalypse edition yeah and what do so, you think on that i don't know i've always thought that was ridiculous and then a few weeks ago i was telling some friends that story and one of them was like yeah i 100 mm. percent would have been confused by that and would have spent the last several years trying to find the normal edition of the book it's why in america the exact same reasoning why the final empire is cut off of mistborn so in the uk for those who don't know, I wrote a book called Mistborn, The Final Empire, and it's a trilogy of three Mistborn novels. Mm -hmm. And the first book yeah. title is... All, all the people out there who yeah. don't know your books and yet are <laughs> listening to this podcast hey, There are reason. one or two. <laughs> there always are. There's like a spouse who's been forced to listen to this, or there's someone who was clicked random somehow and ended up with a podcast. It's true. Or there's some jerk who's like on the subway just listening out loud and everyone uh -huh. in the... Yep. Dear everyone else in that subway car, Mistborn the Final Empire was a trilogy of books. <laughs> Dear everyone else in that subway car, we're sorry. We apologize that you have to listen to us. And even though we are calling it intentionally blank for now, we are not very good at not saying things. It was called Mistborn the Final Empire. The Final Empire was the title, just like kind of A New Hope is the title for episode four. I say that questioningly, though it really is. Sort of retroactively is but tor was like we think people are thinking this is the last book of the series because it says the final empire and we think that it should just be mistborn and i was fine with that i'm like ah mm -hmm. again no one calls star wars a new hope except when they want to differentiate it from other films and so for that very same reason i have a book title alter as well well so here's another title that's going to confuse the rest of the people in the subway car hey guys Thanks for still listening. This title is Not a Writing Excuses Spinoff. <laughs> Brandon and I have another podcast. This is actually our second one. The first one is one that we share, the two of us with Howard Taylor and Mary Robinette Kowal. And various co-hosts. And various other co-hosts and special guest stars and things. We've been doing that for 13 years, and it won a Hugo. It did. And a bunch of Parsec Awards. It won a Hugo. I think I told this story on the podcast here. It won a Hugo for my dumb brother. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think that's how you phrased it, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have the tea, and there's a very nice illustration of the boba tea that we had in a previous episode. Much better done than the logo for said boba tea location. Thank you very much. I think it would be weird to call it I have the tea when... That happened on one podcast, and, you know, we're, yeah. we're searching for something more iconic, more covering all the different various topics that we might... Something uh, that covers everything we have. Okay, so speaking of tea, you mentioned the boba tea, yep. which reminds me that we have another food heist to talk about. Oh, food heist. Food heist. We need to get a food heist jingle we need or something. A, we need a food heist jingle. Mm. Get on that jingle. Man. So this was in the news recently because I believe the guy was either arrested or actually convicted, but it was pistachios. They're worth a lot. For they're, they're worth nuts. a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. A ton of money. Nuts are big money. And as the article I read so eloquently put it, pistachios do not have serial numbers on them. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was a guy who stole 42 thousand pounds of pistachios by setting up a fake trucking company he set up a fake company he got hired to do this job 
And then he basically just oh. drove the trucks to a different warehouse, repackaged them, and sold them to a distributor. 42,000 42, pounds. 42,000 pounds. That's 21 tons of money. Not just a ton of money, <laughs> 21 ton of money. The pistachio industry in California is a $5.2 billion industry. Man. Which is why food heists are so delightful to me because they seem ridiculous, but there's so much money in them. And so now I just want, like every time I hear a food heist, I'm like, I want to do that movie. Of the guy who steals, steals 42,000 pounds of pistachios by pretending to be a trucker. I finally watched The Fast and the Furious, like, where they started to be good. You're speaking of heists which, and things. Which, which one was So that? I had seen Fast and Furious 1 a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And I had heard that 2 through 4 are kind of a chore, depending on who you talk to. Some people like them. But the audience and critic ratings are not uh, terribly high on those. And so I never got around to the rest of the series. And someone said, this isn't the sort of series you have to do your homework on. They drive cars quickly and they're a family. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you're right. Let's watch the good ones. So I watched Fast Five and it was ludicrously stupid in all the right ways. I really enjoyed it. I have this thing where I really like Vin Diesel because he tries so hard. Yeah. Right? Vin like, Diesel doesn't get the respect he deserves, I think. He's not a brilliant actor, but he gives it his all. And it is charming to watch how seriously he takes this movie. And it actually makes the whole thing work. Mm -hmm. Because if these movies were more campy than they are, I don't think they'd work at all. At least the ones I have seen. Yeah. Instead, it's very serious. Also, our cars are flying now. And we're towing a giant safe with two cars. Don't think about it. And so, yeah, we watched so, it at midnight, started at like 11, <laughs> 11 until one o'clock. So I was watching a thing today. There's a really cool series on YouTube called Stuntmen React. Oh, yes, I've seen it. Seen that. Mm -hmm. They talk about the safe from Fast Five. Uh -huh. And literally that safe is just built around a truck. And there's a guy inside driving the truck. And it's just a super bare bones thing that looks like a safe. That's a really smart idea, right? Yeah. Like, I would have probably mistakenly thought they just put it on wheels. But of course, that's not going to go where you want it to go. Mm -hmm. And it looks very real. It's not CG. Yeah. And it's all so, practical effects. Uh, that whole sequence was just wonderful. I love it when people are that creative with their stupidity, if that makes sense. <laughs> and it people really... who take silly things seriously. Yes. Produce wonderful art yes and so i'm excited after the next two writing groups not this week but next week and the week after probably we're going to watch six and seven which i hear are both quite good as well in the same sort i of just vein. watched seven mm -hmm. and while i did not love it mm -hmm. there were definitely stunts in it that i thought yeah that's awesome it has the highest of the scores really yeah seven does but the yeah. thing for me is I love seeing things I've never seen before. Mm. When you watch a lot of movies, when you read a lot of books, you kind of get in this place where you're like, yeah, I've seen this. Or I recognize all the ingredients of this. I know where this came from. Right. And there's a bit in Fast and Furious 7 where I'm like, you know what? I've never seen this before. And that's really amazing to me. You know, this is, I think, a problem with criticism in general that isn't acknowledged enough. As someone who is on both sides of that, mm -hmm. right? Getting critiqued and offering criticism. I'm like a real YouTuber now because I release like video essays and stuff. It's, <laughs> yeah. 
and that's kind of what this podcast has turned into is mm-hmm. kind of a criticism podcast in a lot of ways. One issue is it's what I'll call the Aragon problem, right? Okay. When Aragon came out to people for whom those You're tropes, talking about the book. The book Aragon. Yes. Yeah. The movie Aragon is unwatchable without riff tracks. Because I, I know what you're going to say, yeah. and mm-hmm. it is a great defense of the book, and the yes. movie is indefensible. For people to whom these tropes were well-trodden and well-worn, mm-hmm. Aragon did very little for them. They picked up the book. They're like, I have seen this a billion times before. I am not interested. Mm-hmm. And that was mostly our generation, right? Who grew yeah. up on Star Wars. Because Aragon is a bit of a remix on Star Wars and Anne McCaffrey, kind of a mashup of a lot of those things. For people to whom those tropes were brand new, Aragon was everything that Star Wars and Anne McCaffrey was to me. Yeah. And Star Wars and Anne McCaffrey were remixing things from before. And so your experience as a critic directly influences you in ways that are not often, I think, acknowledged. A lot of film critics, they watch a lot of movies because they want to offer, you know, critiques of these movies for people. But then by very nature of doing it as much as they're doing it, they stop being as reliable a source, this happens to us too, as they used to be, at least for the general movie-going public. If Mm -hmm. you watch three movies a year, three movies you want to see are going to be very different from the person who's like, this movie is brilliant because it does everything different. Well, see, I'm going to disagree with you, though, on this. First of all, you're right, but the fact Mm. that that is an unacknowledged aspect of criticism... I disagree with okay. completely because that is the number one critique leveled at critics okay. is, oh, you dumb out of touch people who are so bored by movies that real people like. See, I think that that critique is made, but the nuance of why is not what's discussed because it's not people go and they're like, oh, the critics are elitists who don't like, you know, normal things that mm-hmm. people like, but that is not getting the whole picture a large number of people who watch that many films will have this natural sort of progression that happens to them. And it becomes much more difficult to figure out what the average movie or reader is going to enjoy for that reason, which is interesting because part of our job, at least my job, you veer off into the more experimental more often than I do. Part of my job is understanding what is going to connect and work with my audience without having that happen to me, without not doing things that are new just to be new, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And Which I do do on purpose pretty often. Yeah, and that's a valid reason to do new things, right? Let's mm-hmm. try this new thing and see how it works. But yeah. it's this aspect of criticism that I don't think we as critics talk about enough, and even audiences are like, oh, those critics are out of touch. I don't think you're talking about why and how this works and what's going on with it and it how really we've talked about this before in the podcast before how genuinely difficult it is to try and look at something with a critical eye and say how well is it doing the thing it is trying to do and how can i suggest that it do that thing better rather than what is this thing trying to do and how can i change it into being the thing that i think it should be Yeah, my two rules of criticism when I critique something are number one, I'm usually not going to publicly review something I didn't like because I don't see any point. Like this show, we're going to tear into things. 
But like, if I do a YouTube review of a role-playing game or something, if I hate it, I'm just not going to review it. Yeah. And that's something that I learned back when we did Time Wasters Guide in college. But the other rule that I always try to follow is to think about who the audience is. Because different things are successful for different reasons for different audiences, which is exactly what you're talking about. You know, a movie that does not work for me at all, but does work for somebody else, that doesn't mean it's bad. The fact that I dislike it doesn't make it bad. It just means it wasn't really for me, necessarily. And I do believe that there is, you know, a possibility of finding objective quality or objective lack of quality in art. But I don't know how useful that is. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, we've talked about plot holes before. Plot holes are something I think you can point to and say, objectively, this is not explained. You mm -hmm. can point that out. Say, this is not explained. Viewers and readers might ask this question and probably will. But the leap that that actually makes the art worse is a leap that I'm not sure I'm willing to take in a lot of cases. Because... Yeah explaining things has a cost in films and you can only explain so much and walking that fine line you have to leave some plot holes and you try very hard to cover up the ones that are going to kick people out of the story and you try to ignore the ones that won't and that's an art of storytelling and so yes you can find objective you can be like objectively this has a plot hole but what does that do for yeah. us well and that's why i dislike so many of the youtube series about like everything wrong with this yes. or realistic, honest trailers or even the movie pitch one that you recommended. Most of them seem to focus on refrigerator logic, right? Mm -hmm. This all works while you're watching it. But then later when you're getting a snack out of the refrigerator, you think, wait a minute, that scene doesn't actually make any sense now that I think about it. Well, it doesn't have to make sense now. It made sense at the time and you enjoyed it. And that's kind of what its job was. Yeah, but the thing is, like, there are really good critiques out there that really dig in depth. You can find mm -hmm. them on YouTube. We've talked about some yeah. people do that. That's really hard. And it's not as entertaining <laughs> to sit not. down and say, all right, we're going to realistically look at the themes of the Transformers movies, like mm -hmm. Lindsay Ellis did, and we're going to break down the artistic intent, and we're going to look at them and see what they're trying to do and maybe what some flaws in those assumptions are. And they're brilliant videos but they are not as YouTube algorithm friendly as, well, let's talk about the plot holes that they missed in yeah, this. Let's and just make fun of this popular movie. Everyone's going to click on that. Let's say I love the pitch meeting. I love Ryan George. I think that's his name. I watch his channel and his other channel, but I really like his other things better than his pitch meeting. He, he does these little skits. They'll be like the first person who invented restaurants. And it's, you know, a guy being like, all right, you're going to come to my house and eat now. And they're like, I, I, I don't want to. He's like, nope, you're coming to my house and eat and you're going to pay me. And it's just, it's really funny kind of poking fun at human nature and things. Awesome. But I like oh, that. I've seen one of those. Yes. The first people to get divorced, I think it was, or the first people to get married, or maybe it was a yeah. series that had both of those. It's always him and various incarnations of himself yeah. doing one person skits. But let's not make this a total call out of all those things. But that's entertainment. Mm -hmm. Like when I watch Pitch Meeting, it's not criticism of the film. I'm watching it because it's funny. Yeah. When I watch a Lindsay Ellis video, I'm looking for in-depth criticism of the film. Enlighten me on how to be better at storytelling 
from a critical perspective. Yeah. Well, and now that we've bashed on critics for a while, I right. do want to put in that plug because I do find criticism really valuable well, if it is thoughtful academic criticism. I think there's a lot to be gained from that sort of thing. And I know that's not what you were saying is, you know, critics are all out of touch, clearly. But just for our audience and for those people on the subway, there's a lot of value in talking about what something does and how it does it that me as, you know, an English major and an, and an artist, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, I do too. And I think criticism is really important. Mm -hmm. Like it is what helps genres evolve. And until we look seriously at things, including, you know, our own art and whatnot, we can't explore it completely i don't think until yeah. there's that kind of external pressure and force picking at these things there's almost no sentence in the world that enrages me more than just turn your brain off and you'll enjoy this like i know what they mean and i know that their intentions are good right uh -huh. and there are certainly things that i enjoy because they're dumb or because they're easy i talked about fast five yeah mm -hmm. and that's fine but if your only defense of something is don't think about it yeah. That just irks me. It gets under my skin. Well, it has a wrong perspective. I mean, I've talked about how dumb that movie was, but it was the type of dumb movie that takes an enormous amount of effort to project its dumbness onto the screen. And when I say dumb, I'm really getting at this idea of it is playing to familiar tropes, set pieces. It is not trying to have nuance. It doesn't want to have nuance. It wants to let you have a fun time and that's yeah. really difficult to do well just look at how many failed versions of this sort of blockbuster there are and you'll know yeah. that this takes an incredible amount of skill it's so hard to do that kind of crowd pleasing stuff well if you want to please a big enough crowd and fast and the furious is like the seventh highest grossing film franchise of all time it's wildly good at what it does my favorite sentence my favorite bit of wisdom about criticism is from Roger Ebert, who I think is a brilliant writer. And he said, it doesn't matter what something's about, only how it's about it. And that is such a great encapsulation of why I like the Fast and Furious movies, because it doesn't matter what they're doing on a certain artistic level. What matters is how they're doing it, how they are trying to engage the audience, what they are trying to show and how they are trying to show it. And so I love that. Can we talk a little bit about the kind of bad rap that Ebert gets for his games are not arts stance, <laughs> which let's point out that I disagree with him on yeah. this. But for those who don't know, there was a big sort of stink that persisted on the internet centered around Roger Ebert in mm -hmm. the years before he died, where he was making the argument that games are not art. Well, and more so that games cannot oh, be art. Yeah, games cannot be art. Yeah, mm -hmm. you were right. And... He's making a pedantic argument, a much more pedantic argument than you think he's making. Because you hear that and you're like, I have played games that are works of art. Yeah. His argument, which again, very pedantic, is that those games contain brilliant pieces of art. They contain writing and music and visuals and all of these things that are art. But the game mechanics, he's saying, are not. The game checkers is not art. You can make cool pieces out of the checkerboard and that's art. And again, I think it's a pretty pedantic argument. Yeah. And I disagree with it. I do think game mechanics can be art. They absolutely um, can be. I but, think, yeah, that, that kind of argument is basically a way of saying 
I am old and I have not accepted this new thing yet. See, I don't think he is. I think that's the misunderstanding. I think that's what people are putting the words in his mouth. He is not saying that at all. Well, I don't think that he's saying it I don't on think purpose. he's even intending to say it. What he's saying is that the actual act of flipping a coin is not art. The act that you take, pushing a button, is not art. If you read his essay, the mechanics aren't art. Everything else about them is. And a video game can be a wonderful artistic experience, but the actual idea of pushing a button itself is not art. That's what he's saying. That if you read well, his actual okay, essay, yes, even if we accept that yes. premise, mm -hmm. I think that at the root, the root of that belief is that he just has not thought of it that way before and is unwilling to consider it, which yes. is a sign of I am old and have not accepted this new thing Except, yet. Except, again, I'm playing devil's advocate. He's talking about checkers and chess, which he's played his entire life. Yeah. He's experienced games a ton. Yeah, so but, that, but that doesn't mean he's thought about them in a critical or artistic way. Right, but I think saying he's an old man is dismissive of the argument, is what I'm saying. Now, he's not willing to entertain this media form that is burgeoning and growing beyond its bounds. Totally, mm -hmm. I get what you're saying. But my argument to him is not, you don't get it, you're an old man. My argument is, here are specific instances where actual game design choices, not the things around it, have increased my love of the artistic piece. For instance, here's an example with books. I like it when the form of the book enhances your enjoyment of the story. A simple case of this is sometimes you can put a page break. So you have to turn the page and then you get the reveal, right? Mm -hmm. That is a little more artistic. You can't really do that anymore with eBooks and whatnot. Yeah. But the turn of a page in the Akira comic, for instance, Akira, where you get the blast, the mm -hmm. full page spread, is a mechanical choice to make you turn that page and is absolutely artistic in yeah. its choice. And I think Ebert would agree that choosing when to slice a film, that the editing is an art form itself. Mm -hmm. And I think making that argument would say, yes, the physical, like choosing which medium you put the thing on, choosing where you cut it. These are all parts of the art. And in the same way, choosing how you make people push the buttons. I don't like quick time events, but quick time events are an absolutely an artistic choice. The yeah. button pushes in there. It changed the way you interact with the medium. So the rules, the actual things he's getting at where he's saying the rules themselves are not art. In that case, they are because it is changing your experience and how you in interface. And I think that in that case, you do have a point because you can't do that as easily with chess. You can't explain that you are constrained to move this piece at this one time because of an artistic decision. And mm -hmm. so his unfamiliarity with it is part of this, but I think his argument is stronger than we give it credit for. And it's not just old man yells at cloud. It is person <laughs> trying to make a really interesting but flawed argument about an art form that I wish people would do yeah. more often and that the internet didn't pile on them quite as yeah. often. And that's definitely true. It's very hard to discuss anything intelligently on the internet. Aren't I, we I doing that right now? I know. Oh, wait, intelligently. Intelligently. Right, right, right. I would almost go as far as to say that your interpretation of his argument makes his argument pointlessly narrow. But yes, that's why I which, call it pedantic. Yeah, which, pedantic? Is, which is why it's yeah. very pedantic. And at mm -hmm. that point, it doesn't matter if he's right or wrong because it's so narrow that the answer doesn't matter. But at the same time, we were talking earlier about like part of the value in criticism is that 
when you do the autopsy of the thing, that's mm -hmm. when you really get to understand it. And he's doing an autopsy of this and saying, all right, what parts of gaming is art? Mm -hmm. The music, definitely. The visuals, definitely. What about when you choose how often to push this button? Is that art? And I think it's useful to think about. I really liked reading his essays yeah. about this. I thought they were really interesting reads, despite how vigorously <laughs> I disagreed with him. I love that he raised the issue. Well, and that's something that we do got to say, because, you know, now that we've been bashing on a dead man for his old argument, he is genuinely one of my favorite writers. I think he's incredibly talented and very smart, but he's wrong a lot. Oh, yeah. Uh, go read his, look it up online, because all his reviews are still online. Read his review of Predator. And it's so obvious that he actually really liked the movie. He just thought it was dumb and then was kind of making fun of it because he thought he was supposed to. He's kind yeah. of the read you get on it. You know, one of the critiques he makes of Predator, I know this essay well because I use it as an example a lot. One of the critiques he makes is he gives the basic premise of the movie that a bunch of commandos go in the jungle and then get attacked by an alien. And he says, and that's the kind of thing that you would come up with after a 12-minute brainstorming meeting, you know? Handily ignoring the fact that nobody else had ever made that movie or used that premise ever before. So right. clearly it's a little more original than he's giving it credit for. Predator is brilliant. There's a really good video essay on Predator. I'm trying to remember who That's made it. That's one I would call a perfect movie. Who made this? Because Predator is a slasher film. Look up Predator's a slasher film, producer Adam, and find me who made this one. I'm going to recommend this video essay because cool. one of the things I love, and we talk about this a ton on Writing Excuses, is when genres are hiding as other genres, right? Mm -hmm. When you go to a movie and there is something hidden in this movie, you know, my favorite example is this idea of the underdog sports story popping up all over the place yeah. in movies just with different things. And he or she, the person who made this essay, talks about The Predator as a slasher film where it follows all the slasher film tropes. And it even sets you up with the same premise of, it shows the manly men going on their mission at the beginning and they're successful and they're super manly. And then they get hunted one at a time, putting them in the position of the usually teenagers, often teenage girls who are getting murdered in a slasher film in exactly the same way, the same dynamic. And it is just a brilliant talk about how to transpose the tropes of one genre to another and do it in such a way that you can't even see it until you step back and do this sort of criticism. And Arnold, is the final girl. Yeah, he is. And, you know, ironically, there is, you know, the one woman in the yes. entire movie does escape and shows up at the end. So they have a, a well, technical final girl. The, the, but... the thing about the final girl, she gets let go because she's not... She's not worth hunting. Yeah, she's not in this story. The Predator says, no, you're not part of this story. The person who would, in a normal slasher film, be the person who gets killed, you know, first, probably, you aren't in this film because... You aren't my prey. I am hunting these overly buff dudes. It's so cool. Adam, did you find that anywhere? I didn't find a specific video entitled that. I did find a post on Reddit on the horror subreddit saying, is Predator a slasher movie? Right. The top comment is Arnold is my I don't know uh, if you could. Girl. I don't know if you could make the argument that Predator is not a slasher movie. Right. Like, is that even an argument in the cinema world it's clearly a horror movie well it's clearly a horror just movie setting up different expectations at the beginning which is one of the things i love about it i do need to point out 
just as my own personal brag mm -hmm. that I have been to the set where they filmed Predator because it's right outside of Puerto Vallarta and it's awesome. And I've been in one of the original helicopter props that is still there in the jungle. Ooh. It's pretty cool. If you can find yeah. which essay he's talking about, write the URL on a paper airplane and throw it into the air. Or leave it in the comment in r slash Sanderson or in the YouTube comments. We do have a we do have a Reddit, like the subreddit now, so read it there. One of these podcast titles is the podcast for our fans who don't write, which I do think is maybe a good one because that is, you know, we have writing excuses where we talk about writing. This one, we're still talking about storytelling, but I think from a very fanish Yeah, the idea perspective. is for this podcast is if you're not a writer, but you do like listening to Bran and Danden, <laughs> Bran, oh, and Dan Bran and Dan talking, then this is the podcast for you, but not anymore today because we are done and we have no outro. Thank you.